Our passage for our sermon this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Acts 2, verses 36 through 41. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had, been rece- who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> now, um, the... Qu- the, the um, Question is, a question is the title of the sermon. When does discipleship begin for our children? I think we know when it begins for adults. The Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, He says, Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then He says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. We know this. To the end. Of the world, we know how this applies to adults. But I want to I want to go through this, and I want to show you how we do things in an Orthodox Presbyterian setting. Now, in this text, we see the first thing that happens is the disciple, or they become known as apostles. They go out and they preach the gospel, and we hear the gospel from pastor teachers. So, first, people go out and they preach. Second, adults hear the gospel and they respond by repenting of their sins and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then the third thing that happens, we're told here that those disciples, those adult disciples are baptized and then they are to be taught, they're to be taught what Jesus commanded us to know and to observe in a local church. This is how adult disciples are made. Now, in our church, there's a typical sequence of events that happens when we talk about an adult becoming a communicant member. Now, that's not a term everybody usually hears, but communicant member means a person who has certain privileges in the church. We can vote, and we, most particularly, and most importantly, we can take the Lord's Supper as a communicant member. And so, let's think this through a little bit. You hear, if as an adult, You hear the gospel preached. And what are you hearing? You come to understand that we are sinners in the presence of a holy God. We come to understand that we have broken God's laws in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds. We understand that God's eyes are too pure to look upon our sins. And God is the one. God is the one, not us. We have our faces turned away from God. God is the one who sends His Son in order to reconcile us back to the Father. 
God's the one who's doing this through His Son and by the power of His Spirit. And so God sends Jesus Christ. The bad news is we're sinners and God can't look upon us. The good news is is that God sends His Son Jesus to come and do two important things. You can't separate these two things. Jesus' righteousness is composed of all His life work and all His death work, all His cross work. Jesus in His life, He lives perfectly in His thoughts, in His words, in His deeds for 33 years. And then at the very end, if you go read your New Testament, you'll see that most of the Gospels are about the last week of His life. Have you ever thought about that? Most of the Gospels are about Jesus' last week of His life. And so there He is. What is He doing? He is dying for us, for sinners. He goes to the cross and He does what we cannot do for ourselves. Our sins deserve punishment. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus lives this perfect life. He dies on the cross for our sins so that we do not have to receive the brunt of that punishment for our sins. And when you and I, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus' active obedience and His passive obedience, His obedience becomes our obedience by faith. We call that His righteousness. It's imputed to us and it's received by faith. His life work, His cross work, Adam together, that's His righteousness. You and I are saved by works, just not ours. We are saved by works. His works, His perfect works. Now, when an adult comes to faith in Jesus Christ in one of our churches, uh, maybe a person might come up and say, Hey, listen, guess what, preacher? I put my faith in Jesus Christ. What am I to do now? And so, you know, what the preacher's going to tell them or what the uh, officer is going to tell them or maybe what the church member is going to say is, hey, you know, we have a class. It's called a, a new members class. And so they will direct you to maybe take this new members class. Now, this new members class, it's not to slow you down from getting, getting to take the Lord's Supper and it's not to slow you down from getting to, to be baptized. It's just to say, hey, listen, we have a little bit of a class. What we want to do is we want to make sure you understand what you've done so that you're ready to confess your faith before the congregation and be baptized. And so I've had the privilege in this church and in other churches to take many of you through what we call Confessing Christ. And the book Confessing Christ is basically a book that centers around our five vows for membership. And so what we do is we talk about, you're going to make these vows in front of the congregation. And so we talk about the vows, and we we talk about each one, and, and I've been in your homes and we've done these things. The first vow goes like this. What do we believe about the Bible? And so we talk about the Bible. Right, Maddie? We talk about the Bible and we say that God is the one who inspired the Bible through holy men taught by the Holy Spirit. And then we say that the Bible, in the Bible, there's this one perfect way of knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's vow number one. We talk about that. The second vow for membership has to do with God being one God in three persons. And then we say he's of the same substance, he's equal in power and glory, all the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we say that this one God who uh, expresses himself in three persons, that the Son of God, the second person, comes in human flesh to this earth. The third vow for membership uh, rotates around the requirements of being saved. You and I must, and I'm going to use the word in the, uh, the vows, we must abhor. Now you use that word every day, right? You, 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 abhor, you, you do abhor things, but you probably don't use that every day. It means to hate. It means to forsake. It means to, that you know that your life in sin is displeasing to God, and so you repent of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you 
are, are saved. This is what it means. The requirements that we are given in the third commandment, we vow that we have understood that we're sinners, we repent, and we believe. The fourth vow is this. It has to do with Christ being Lord, Lord of all, Lord of your life. And so we come and we say, by the grace of God, I'm going to obey Jesus' commandments. And we're going to renounce the world. We're going to resist the devil. And we're going to put to death all our sinful deeds and all our sinful desires by the help and grace of God. And then we come to the fifth vow. And the fifth vow has to do with the church's regular worship and with your attendance and with the government, your submission to the government of the church. And we talk about that. Um, if you're found delinquent in your life, if you're found delinquent in your behavior, if you are having a struggle and you're willing to take some gentle correction from the session. This is what we talk about in this class. It's not to scare people. It's just to help people make a credible profession of faith. It's to help people come and do what they're doing with more understanding. And one of the things that we do is also we talk about who we are as a congregation. We are Good Shepherd, OPC, and we are Presbyterians. So we're going to have some distinctives that we need to talk about. Now, all of this to a watching world sounds tedious. It's not. It may sound even tedious to you, but it's not. It works out really well. Many people that I've been around, they think, oh man, listen, uh, they want a religion according to their own whims. They want a religion according to their own words. They want a religion according to their own sovereign self. But you know, upon closer inspection, even the world who does not want our vows, even the world who does not want to learn the language of heaven, and even the world who chastises us for having a confession of faith, guess what? They have their own language, they have their own confessions, they have their own standards, and they make their own vows. And I could show you this ten different ways, but I'm going to just give you a conversation I had when I was a personal trainer. So I had a woman... I will call her Mrs. P, and she was an atheist. You've heard me talk about her before because I trained her for 10 years. I got a lot of stories about Mrs. P. Well, Mrs. P, when she found out that I wanted to go be a minister, uh, she realized that I wasn't going to try to ram Jesus Christ down her throat. So she asked me every Tom, Dick, and Harry question you can imagine about going to Presbytery. And we, we can, if you don't know what Presbytery is, ask me after church and I'll tell you. But she used to call Presbytery meetings inquisitions. Because she knew that ministers were going to have to sit in front of a congregation of elders and, and, um, and ministers and answer questions for 90 minutes to two hours about their conf the confession of faith. And she would say something like this, Are you about to go to the Inquisition pretty, uh, in a few weeks? And I'd go, Yes, I'm going to go to the Inquisition. Well, I don't think that anybody who wants to be a minister should have to answer any questions in, in, in any way they don't want to answer. They just ought to be, believe anything they want to believe. They can be a minister and believe that Jesus is a girl. I mean, anything, whatever. You can believe anything you want to believe. You don't need to have a standard. Well, I knew Mrs. P pretty well at this point, And so I said, now, I said, you're still a registered nurse, aren't you? And she said, I am. Now, she's in her 60s. She hadn't practiced being a nurse in a very long time. But you know what she did? Every year she took her board certification to make sure she was still a, an RN. Because, friend, when you're an RN, you're an RN. I love RNs, okay? So, anyway, so she says, yes, I took my board, my board exam, and I'm a certified, uh, you know, I'm up to date. 
And I said, well, when you answer questions for the certification for the RN and staying all up to date and everything, don't you, don't you have to answer the questions according to a norm, according to a standard? Yes, I do. I said, you can't just answer those questions any way you want to? She said, no, I can't. I said, well, I said, if you want to be part of the OPC Boys Club, you have to answer the questions according to the confession. You have to answer the questions according to the catechisms. And when you're a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church, you don't have to sit down for 90 minutes. But we do take some time. We call it new members class, if you will. We take some time to go over these vows so that you know, so that we know that you're helped to know and to be ready to make a good, a credible profession of faith and then to be baptized. Once a person makes, goes through this class, we generally have them sit down. And they sit down with the session and we, we have them ex- share their testimony with us. Now, this is not to sound scary, even though it sounds scary. If you're a woman and you come in front of five men, usually we say, hey, you know what? We'll get some wife. We'll get somebody to come along with you. And you can sit with all the guys as the session and we will talk over your testimony. And so usually these things go, they're so fun. It's so fun to listen to somebody share their faith in Christ. And they talk about the Bible and they talk about repentance and they talk about Jesus and they talk about how they love to worship and they tell us all these wonderful things and they tell us about how they want to be baptized and how they want to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so once it's all over, ordinarily the session uh, proves them to be a member of the church and their name is placed in front of the congregation for a couple of weeks. And then that person comes and makes those five vows and then they join the church and they're baptized after they make the vows. That's the typical way. That's the typical way. I may have left a thing or two out, but that's the typical way an adult professes their faith in Christ and is baptized. But the question is this morning, what about the discipleship of infants and small children of those who've just made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and they have been baptized? The adult who professes faith in Jesus Christ has a new relationship to Christ, has a new relationship to Christ's church. But what about the children of those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ? Do our infants and do our little children, by virtue of their parents' profession of faith, do they also have a new relationship with Christ and with Christ's church? We're not saying that our infants are born again. We're not saying that our infants are repenting and believing. They may not, they're not going to understand anything. They're infants. But do they not have some difference or some change in their relationship compared to those who are not in the church? You see, now I have a believing man and woman. They have children. They profess their faith in Christ. They've been baptized. And now what are they doing? They're coming to church. The people, they, one time they were not in the church. They were outside the church. They were sleeping right now. They were getting ready for a ball game right now. They were not part of the church. They come to the church. Now they're receiving the sacraments. Now they've been baptized. Now they've made a profession of faith. Now they've come and they're taking the Lord's Supper. Now they're attending worship. And as they do that, they have a different relationship to Christ and the church by faith. But the children are also in tow. Do the children have a different relationship with Jesus Christ by virtue of the faith of the father and the mother? And we would say that everyone would say in their right mind, yes, they do. Yes, they do. But it's in answering these questions. It's in answering these questions that we come to a difference between 
those who do baptize infants and small children and those who do not. And so as we answer these questions, we determine what we believe, and then we will determine, based on what we believe, basically where we're going to go to church. <laughs> um, and basically this issue has to do with what, and I'm going to say these words, I'm going to say them over and over, and if you want a little bit more help later, um, I'll help you. But I'm going to say this stuff over and over, okay? This is the issue between what we call pedo-baptism and pedo-credo-baptism. Now, those are words you may not ever heard, have heard in your life. And this is where there's a difference between Reformed and Presbyterian and Reformed and Baptist. And there's so many points of agreement between a Reformed and Presbyterian and a Reformed and Baptist. There's so many points of agreement. Let me, let me give you an idea of what I mean. When I was in Tyler, Texas for so many years as their associate, every, every six times a year I would call to go by one of the ministers in Shreveport, Louisiana, and preach at a Baptist church. We preach in each other's churches. We talk the same language on many points, many fronts, but we do have this difference when it comes to baptism. So make no mistake, we're going to be found in each other's churches. We're going to be found in each other's communions at times, and even sometimes because of distance, we may be even members of a, of a Presbyterian church when we would might go to a Baptist church. We have many, many points of agreement. But the paedo-baptist or the Reformed and Presbyterian believes that in the baptism of the adult who professes faith in Christ and then in the baptism of the children or the infants of those believing parents. While the credo-baptist believes in the baptism of adults only who profess their faith in Christ, they're the only ones baptized and the little ones are excluded until they believe. Now, I would propose, as we go through the rest of the sermon, I would propose that my credo-baptist friends listen carefully to what we're saying about paedo-baptism so that you understand that we as Presbyterians, with this distinctive, that when we baptize our babies and when we baptize our little children, we don't do it for reasons of tradition. We don't do it because it's sentimental, although it's a wonderful tradition, and it's very sentimental, <laughs> Right? These are memories. These are things that really touch our hearts. They are sentimental. We're not doing these things because it's some leftover uh, vestige of Rome. We're doing it because we believe the Bible teaches it. The Reformers themselves would never have continued to baptize infants and children of a believing parent or parents for the sake of tradition. They did it strictly because they believed that the authority of the Bible teaches it. And where I would like to go, and I know that I'm, I'm setting myself up here for uh, a little bit of difficulty because we're fixing to get into Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I'm going to probably throw in some Christmas uh, sermons in the middle of all this. But I do want to talk to you about how do we disciple our children. This is a really important thing to Orthodox Presbyterians. How do we disciple our children? When do we start the discipling process? And we believe by virtue of the fact that a child is born to a Christian believer who's been baptized, that, that we believe that that child becomes, comes into a distinctive relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not saying that they're saved, but we're saying that they come into a unique, a distinctive relationship to Jesus Christ, unlike those outside the church. And so what I want to do is begin with paedo-baptism as the starting point in the discipleship of our children. And it should encourage us 
On the other hand, for credo, the credo Baptist who listens very carefully, they may change their mind, they may become Reformed and Presbyterian, but if they don't, that's okay. But what we would want to make sure is that people understand why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we baptize a baby? Why do we baptize um, small children or a little older children sometimes? We do it because we believe the Bible makes the argument. So here are the three points. I want to begin with the positions in regard to the questions. The positions in regard to the questions I ask you. The position of the Pado baptist he believes that if you go back, and I'm going to, I want to say it this way, I'm going to keep repeating myself so that you can get the lingo down. Abraham believed in Genesis 15 after he believed God gave him the, the sign and seal of the covenant afterwards. He believed he received the sign and seal of the covenant and then he was to put that sign and seal in the flesh and foreskin of his children. The believer, received, is, he believes, he receives it after he believes and then we have the children receiving the covenant, this covenant sign before they believe. This is the view of the Pado baptist the credo-baptist believes that the adults only who make a profession of faith, that they alone are to be baptized and not their children. These are the two views. Now, let's continue with the admissions and the responses. The Pado-Baptist admits that there's no direct com command in the New Testament where we are commanded to baptize an infant or a small child of the believing adult. The Credo Baptist will respond by saying it's not biblical to baptize an infant or a small child without a biblical imperative. The, the Credo Baptist must also admit there's no place in the New Testament where it says that, the, that the, the person who confesses their faith in Christ and is baptized, there's no place in the Bible where it commands that to be the order. That's a fact. Have you ever thought about that? If the Bible said only those who put their faith in Christ are to be baptized, we wouldn't be talking about this. We would be somewhere else talking about something else. But the Bible doesn't give us that command. So this brings us to the third point, the, Bible, the biblical principle of good and necessary consequence. I think this helps us to understand each other. And so stick with me. Just as the Pado baptist comes from the Scriptures and deduces from the Scriptures of baptizing infants and small children of the believer, the credo-baptist also comes from the Scriptures and deduces the practice of baptizing only those who, have been, who are believers. This idea of reasoning uh, necessarily implying or deducing something from Scripture that has the force of a command is nothing new. It's not new. Listen carefully. Westminster Confession of Faith, Article, one, Article 6 and Chapter 1. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is expre expressly set down in Scripture, or the Confession says, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. You have commands and you have things that are deduced from Scripture with the same force of a command. So, chapter 1 of the Confession, Article 6, argues for the validity of good and necessary consequence. Things that come down to us through study with the same force as a command. Let me give you some examples. Here's the fourth commandment. 
I hope you can say all the commandments, at least in their short version. Did you know that most ministers can't say the Ten Commandments, even the short version? The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's no explicit repeat of that command in the New Testament. So does it go away? Well, no, it continues. And we're going to see that this is the difference between us in a few minutes. The, this fourth commandment, it continues. But how do we know? Why do we change the fourth commandment that talks about the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week? And all our little children who learn their catechism says, because on that day, Christ what? Rose from the dead. So we change in the New Testament to the first day of the week. Our worship is on the first day of the week, Christian Sabbath, because on that day Christ rose from the dead. On that day Christ appeared to His disciples. On that day we find the, the uh, preaching of the Word. We find fellowship. We find the breaking of bread. We see the sacraments administered, Acts 2.42. These things are starting to happen on the first day of the week. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, On this day take up... Uh, offerings for the churches. So these are things that are happening on the first day of the week. We do not have the fourth commandment revoked. It's not repealed. It's not changed. It just carries forward. And we see by the life of the church, we see that the command is changed to the first day of the week, which the Apostle John calls the Lord's Day. Now here's another thought for you. Here's an example of good and necessary consequence which definitely has the force of a command when we come to the Lord's Supper. Did you know there's not a command in the New Testament that says women can take the Lord's Supper? <laughs> Did you know that? Now, if we believe that you have to have a command to come to the Lord's Supper, it needs to say women can come to the Lord's Supper, then women can't come to the Lord's Supper. But that's not what we believe. Jesus offers this bread and this cup to all His disciples. <laughs> not, not to just men, but to women and men and young people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. By good and necessary consequence, we believe that is exactly in force. We don't need a command that says women can only come. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say you have to have a command. But we know that disciples are commanded to come to the table without women don't have to have a command to come to the table. It's for disciples, women and men. This principle of good and necessary consequence, it takes, if you will, biblical principles take on the force of commands. The fourth commandment does not disappear. Rather, it's in force and the day of worship becomes the first day of the week and women are invited to the table of the Lord whether there's a command for them to come or not. All disciples are welcome. Now, Pado Baptist and Recredo Credo Baptist, remember the Pado Baptist is Reformed and Presbyterian, the Credo Baptist is Reformed and Baptist. We argue our positions based on our relationship and our understanding of the Old and New Testaments. Listen to this carefully. The Credo Baptist argues from what we call discontinuity of the covenant of grace discontinuity. In other words, there's things that happen in the Old Testament. When we cross the line to the New Testament, there's some things do not continue. Abraham believed he, he receives the sign and seal of the covenant. He's to give the sign and seal of the covenant to his children. We get to the New Testament. When an adult believes they're to be baptized and what does not continue is the continuation of bringing the children for the, co the covenant sign and seal after that. That's how our brothers 
argue from discontinuity. We, we have to understand that. I understand that. I'm not mad at my brother for that. But I think that way, the way I'm about to say to you, I think this bears the weight or the warrant of Scripture. The Paedo-Baptist argues from continuity, from Old Testament to New Testament. We would see that Abraham believes. He's, he receives the sign and seal of the covenant as a believer. He places that sign and seal in his children. And that's the same thing that continues through into the New Testament with one change. And that is that circumcision is replaced by watery surgical circumcision in the waters of baptism. There's no more need for blood to be shed as it was in the Old Testament because the Old Testament's getting us ready for Jesus coming, His blood on the cross, the final blood to be shed for our sins. Now there's no need for that. We just have water that preaches blood and cleansing in that blood. And it's my humble conviction and our Presbyterian conviction that this position holds the warrant of Scripture. Now, I don't have enough time to go into all of this. I'm going to just keep marching through these things as the week goes by. But let me give you a few thoughts from men much better than me. John Murray writes, The basic premise for the argument for infant baptism is that the New Testament economy is the unfolding and fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham and the necessary implication is unity and the continuity of the church. In other words, we see this great unity sweeping through. We see prophecy, 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 promise, 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 fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. So here's the question. Back to the questions. Do the infants and the small children of believing adults have any standing in the church? And are they to be brought for this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism? Again, we're not saying they're saved. We're just saying they have a different um, a different conditioner in a different state compared to those who are not being brought up in the church. And we would say, yes. Let me rehearse why we say this. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and appears to him in a vision. And this is God comes to him and gives him promises. He was afraid I won't go into all the reasons he's afraid, but he's just fought a big battle in Genesis 14 and he has fear. There's a lot of marauding uh, groups in those days, and he's afraid. God comes to him, and God reiterates the promises to him, and he gives him five promises. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make your seed like the stars in the sky, and you will be a blessing to all the world. In Genesis 15:6, we hear those words that we all love. God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then in Genesis 17, remember now, right, well, right before that, God cuts the covenant with Abraham. What does he do? He says, Abraham, go cut these animals in half, lay this half on this side of the aisle, lay this half on that side of the aisle. Abraham fights the carrion away, and he goes to sleep. And who walks between the two halved animals? God does. That guarantees to us that Jesus is the one who's going to be cut off for our sins. There is the gospel right there in Genesis 15. And so he walks between them and then God comes to him a few chapters later and he gives him the sign and seal of the covenant, which is circumcision. And he says, you have believed. Now you place this on your body and you place this on your children before they believe. Very important. So these children of Abraham, Abraham is marked by this circumcision and these children are marked by circumcision and they hold a peculiar standing before God because of that 
sign. It did not save them. Mark that down. It did not save them. But it does mean those children are different. Have you ever thought about, I mean, you know, on Sunday nights we're talking about 1 Samuel. And if you remember when it talks about David, he says, go kill those uncircumcised Philistines. Yeah, you know, those people outside the covenant. Now, it doesn't mean that they, they don't need to be saved. It just means there's a difference. This sign distinguishes the children. We hear that. Those uncircumcised Philistines, they're not part of the covenant community. And these children, they're, they're part of the covenant community. And so in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham this outward sign, but it's a portrait to Abraham of something that happened internally. What happens? It's a surgery. There's cutting. There's blood. And when Abraham sees that cutting, when he sees that blood, he's reminded that the only way he can be in right standing with God is through faith, through the promises God gave to him. And then what is he to do? He, as a father of his family, puts this sign and seal in his children, and then he is to teach his children and fill in the blanks as all the years go by. He's to fill in the blanks and say, God has chosen you. He has said, I will be a God to you, Abraham, and I will be a God to your children after you. And you, Abraham, are to be the one who teaches your children all about the fact that I'm putting my name on them. I will forgive them. I will be their God. But here's the condition of the covenant. They have to believe. They have to believe. In this way, God has claimed Abraham and his children to be his own. He puts his own mark on Abraham and his children and he singles them out. And as parents of Old Testament believers brought their children for the sign and seal of the covenant, they were promising to God that they would do all this teaching and fill in the blanks. I'm going somewhere, so get ready. So God is doing all of this, and as we turn to the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the command to do these things continues. We see this continuation. This is beautiful stuff. And so on the day of Pentecost, remember we said, Peter's preaching the gospel, and the men begin to cry out and say they see themselves guilty for putting the deliverer to death. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent and believe. He says, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, dot, 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 the promise is for you, believers. The promise is for your children. It's it's, it's continuing. Old Testament to New Testament, nothing's changed. So here we see adults believing in the promise of God. They're receiving eternal life by faith. They receive the sign and the seal of baptism. And then they go and place that sign on their children. Now, so for what, what, what we're seeing here is for 1,800 years, since the time of Abraham, there's been a, a man who believed placing that sign and seal on his children before they believed. And for 1,800 years, this is going on, and we come to the New Testament, and it continues. This promise is for you, a believer in, in Christ who's baptized, and for your children. The force of it is still there. It's the Reformed pedo-baptist position that every child of believing parents has a special standing before God. And this standing has privilege for the children, and the parents are obligated to bring their children for this baptism. It's our position that we baptize our children because they're children of the covenant. And God has commanded us 
that our covenant children are to receive the sign and seal of the covenant. So when does this discipleship of our children take place? Well, it begins with you. And it begins when your children are born. It begins when your children are brought in front of the congregation and you make vows that you will raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You make the vows and then you go home and you do the hard work. You, ever, you know about going deer hunting, don't you? You don't know about going deer hunting? You go, the deer hunt, the looking part's the easy part. The looking part's the easy part. But when you pull the trigger, that's when the work starts. That's when you got to go out there and you got to get pick the deer up. Oh man, that's that sucker weighs a lot of weight. And then you got to bring him back and you got to hang him in a tree and you got to cut all the guts out and all the gory details. The vows are easy, folks. It's the hard work starts at home and the hard work continues as you bring your child to to church and you keep you, you keep working through whatever difficulties that we have sometimes to get to church. <laughs> don't we have some difficulties getting to church? Oh my, don't we? But we get ourselves here. <laughs> I got people laughing at me, man. Well, don't, ever, don't ask me if my wife and I ever have an argument on Sunday morning. Yeah. But we get here and we keep doing this stuff. And we keep doing this stuff. And we keep bringing these things to their minds. And we keep bringing these things up on our minds. And we keep talking to our children. And we disciple our children day in, day out, morning, evening, and noon. We talk about these things. And we do this not just as parents, but as a... every time. You know, every time we do a, 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 a baptism and parents make vows, you know, the church makes vows too. And every time we do uh, bring a person to make a profession of faith, they make vows, and guess what? We make a vow to love them and care for them, and so it's a congregation thing too. And so we are going to disciple our little people until they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and until they come and do business at the Lord's table with hearts of love and commitment until the day Jesus comes or we die first. That's what this is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we we thank you for teaching us to love you and to be those who put our faith and trust in you. Father, we pray that as we think about these things, we may have some differences of opinion, but Lord, uh, we can't have any difference of opinion when it comes to putting our faith in Christ, loving and nourishing our children with the truth so that they might come to know you like we do, that they might sit down at the table and receive from your hand the bread and the wine and fellowship with you until you come or until you call us home. Work these truths into our hearts and minds. Make us what you want us to be in this life. As we've heard our women studying, we are saints. We are set apart ones, and we pray that you will continue to make us more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.